talking to the people and um, he tells this parable and I'll be reading from a New American Standard it reads like this he says but what do you think a man had two sons he came to the first and said son go work today in the vineyard and he answered I will not but afterward he regretted it and went the man came to the second son and said the same thing and he answered I will sir but he did not go Which of the two did the will of his father? The people that were with him said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and the prostitutes did believe him, and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward, so as... To believe in him. Kind of an interesting story that Jesus shares with the people in his presence, and one that I relate to so well. You know, if I was to ask you, why would the tax gatherers and the prostitutes enter the kingdom of God before these church people, what would you say? Anybody got an idea? Yeah, pretty much they knew they were sinners. You know, one of the great things of people coming to, the, coming to Christ or being saved is, you know, I guess to be saved, you've got to know you're lost first. To be found, you've got to realize you're lost. To be saved, you've got to realize you're a sinner. And uh, I'll just tell you, basically, growing up in Brockton, where I grew up, I didn't learn that for a long time. I grew up in a, in a little section of Brockton called The Village. It was a tough section. They were all Lithuanian and Polish people. Any Lithuanian Polish people here? You know, their last names all ended in Ski or Vich, Is, As, Us. You know, and uh, I grew up with these people. And they, these people, they loved to fight and drink. You know? and, and, and this village where I grew up, if you took a football field and cut it in half, that would be the village. In this little section, geographical area, there were five bar rooms, three package stores, and a nightclub. And they would bounce around and, you know, get in a fight here and then get kicked out of that park, go to the other one, go over there, have a few beers, get in another fight. And, they would. and that's how I grew up. I grew up in this very tough area. I got a lot of fights when I was younger. In fact, what happened was after a few beatings, me and my brother, um, you know, had to learn how to fight. My father took us to the gym in Brockton. There were a couple of gyms. There was Petronelli's, there was Vecchioni's. And my father took us to Vecchioni's. And we learned how to box at an early age. So we could at least walk the streets and defend ourselves without getting beaten up all the time. So we went to the gym and we started training and uh, we, uh, my brother was a southpaw, he still is, and he uh, was lightning fast in the ring. Anytime you got in the ring with my brother, all you saw was leather. I mean, as soon as you got in close, it was, you know, you, all these punches would come, uppercut, left hook, right, foby, and, you know, and he was just lightning fast and as soon as one leather left, another one was coming and, and you know, you'd back up for a minute, you'd see who, get a glimpse of his face and again, as once you got in close, you get, bam, you know, so he was, he was very, very fast, and he was very good. And at the age of uh, 14, he boasted a record of 20-0. and 0. He was undefeated. And he fought in the open division also. He, didn't fight, he fought people his own way. They could be 20, 25, 30 years old, and he beat them all. What happened was asthma finally took him down for the count. And I remember the day he told the trainer that it was over. And Vinny, the trainer, had these tears running down his face 
because he had this champion in the making and it was over. Now I say that by way of contrast, my brother was undefeated, I was however defeated. My brother never lost a fight, I never won one in the ring. And, and I'm going to tell you why, and you, you need to pay attention here. Basically, as a young, growing up as a young guy in the village, I, I wanted to hang around with the tough guys. You know, I wanted to hang on the corner, I wanted to smoke cigarettes, I wanted to swear, I wanted to be around the girls, and I wanted to act tough, and that's what, I, that's what we thought was cool, all right? That's what everybody thought was cool, and that's what I wanted to do. So I didn't train like my brother. And so, uh, needless to say, in the ring, I didn't fare too well. But as life went on, um, you know, we both went to school and graduated, and, and it was back in 1975 when we graduated, I graduated a year later with my brother, that I was in a bar room. Back then the drinking age was 18 for a little while. I was in a bar room and I was standing with a friend who said, uh, so Danny, what are you going to do now, now that I've graduated high school? And I had no idea because, you know, I was a loser. You know, losers don't listen. You know, losers don't think about tomorrow. They don't think about an education or school or getting a degree or doing, making something of their life. They live day to day and that's what I, pretty much what I was. So I didn't know what to say to the guy, but I'm struggling around and I'm thinking, I said, well, Al, you know, what I'm thinking about doing now is I'm thinking about, um, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, uh, and, and the wheels are turning, spit out something, Danny, say anything, just so you don't look like a goof here. And I remember my dad saying, you know, why don't you join the service or something? So I said, I'm thinking about maybe joining the service. Now, this sounded intelligent. I wasn't thinking about it, but I just said it. And then I thought, as an afterthought, how I used to fight in the amateurs, I said, oh, I might go back in the ring and I, I might give the ring a try as a pro. Again, I'm just spitting out words. There's no meaning here. I'm not thinking about this. So he said, you ought to give the ring a try. He said, because when you get older like me, you would always wonder, what if I did this or what if I had done that? So I listened to him. There was a fight coming to town. I went and saw some of my old friends boxing and I said, you know something, I do got to do something. So I grabbed my gym bag and I went to the gym and I started training again under Vinny again. So, and this is back in 1975 again, I think it was right after Rocky One came out, the first one. And so a typical day for me would be to get up, suck my raw egg down, jog around this jogging route I had near the house, two, two and a half miles, come back to the driveway, do some jump ropes, some sit-ups, shower, grab my gym bag and go to my shoe factory job. Minimum wage, $2.90 an hour. I don't want to think about getting an education or going to school or anything. And uh, I would go to the gym and I'd tape up and I'd do my sparring, you know, hit the bag and all that stuff. And instead of heading home and getting a, uh, some sleep like a dedicated fighter, I'd still go through the village. And I knew my friends were in there shooting, pulling the bars and stuff. And so I'd stop in and it would be, hey, Rocky's here, give Rocky one. And one would turn into two and three and four. And I would close my workout with these 12 ounce curls. And basically, I was fooling myself. So after about a year and a half of this, my trainer's watching me, saying, boy, that Kroskin, he can take a punch, he can throw a punch, but there's no way he'd go the distance. There was a big fight coming to town. Tommy Rose was the 15th-ranked lightweight in the world from Boston, and he was fighting some man from Spain, some guy, Carlos Garcia or whatever. And the guy was in the States, training at a gym in Boston, getting ready for this big fight in Boston. And during a sparring match, with his opponent, uh, Carlos uh, ended up taking a shot and opening up an old scar and he bled profusely. And they stopped the sparring match and butterflied him up and, and realized, we got to pull out. There's no way this guy's going to fight Friday night. We got to get a rematch because it was a big fight for him. 
so they're going to get a, another, another night. So when that happens, they have to find somebody to fill in. And they look for what they call a John Doe. Anybody want to guess who got that call? Yeah, I was coming home from the bar one night, and uh, my mother said, Vinny called, he wants to see. He bounced at a nightclub in Brockton. So I showered, put on my suit, went up to the nightclub. I said, hey, Vinny, what's up? He says, hey, you want to fight tomorrow night? And I says, uh, who am I fighting? He said, Tommy Rose. I've seen the guy on TV. I says, yeah, that's a pro fight. He says, yeah, yeah, you're just going to do a couple rounds with this guy. I'm going to take care of you. Young people, be careful when someone says they're going to take care of you, all right? <laughs> if it ain't mom and dad, be very careful. So I says, uh, how much? He says, I'll give you a Sino, 100 bucks. That's pretty much what I made all week long. So, but I'm thinking, hey, here's a chance to fight someone that's big. They're going to give me a fake name, lie about my weight, whatever, but all I got to do is knock this guy out, and I'll tell everybody my real name. I'll start making some big money. So this was my ticket out of the shoe factory. So I says, yeah, I'll fight the guy, Vinny. So uh, I went in the next night and uh, fought the guy, and uh, they changed my name. My name is Dina Rivero from out in New York. I think I was 14-0, and 0, and, uh, and I come out and fought this guy, and... And uh, I did about two, three rounds, and I ran out of gas, and Tommy moved in for the kill, and it was bam, 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 and the ref came up and said, that's enough. And I got my money, and I went home. And I did this a few more times before a great light shined down on Mount Marblehead. And I, uh, I got out. I hung him up, and I got out and went on from shoe factory to shoe factory, from bar to bar, like a loser. And uh, what happened was I ended up getting a job as an iron worker. I met another guy who was a fighter, and he uh, got me in the iron workers union. And what happened was I went from $2.90 an hour to $20 an hour, like that, early 80s. And I started making this money, and I started drinking heavily with these iron workers. And they drank, and some of the younger guys were doing drugs, and I started doing drugs. And I started doing this one drug that cost a lot of money. I never had the money, so, but I always wanted to try it, and so... I tried it, it was called cocaine. And first I learned how to sniff it up and then one of my old boxing buddies, Bunny, showed me how to freebase it, where you cook it up and smoke it. And he told me, he said, Danny, be careful now, this will hook you. And I said, yeah, Bunny, losers don't listen. They don't listen. So I said, yeah, Bunny, right out the other. And sure enough, I get hooked on this drug. Now, I'm making, back in the early 80s, between $800 and $1,500 a week if I work overtime. And I can't go from Wednesday to Wednesday without borrowing money. Every time I get my check, it's gone in a couple of days, and I, I got to borrow money. And I got to pay everybody back, and, get, and I keep doing this. And, and my life is going downhill fast. And I remember one day, we were up on the iron. We were connected to a job in Braintree. And um, we got rained out. It started to rain. And so what happened with these guys that I hung around with, these iron workers, at least some of them who were losers also, they, uh, when it started to rain, they said, come on, let's go, we're out of here. Because you're in the union, you can't get fired. And more respectable people would stick around to see if it stopped raining so they could get a day's pay, feed their family. But losers don't think about that. They, th they only think of themselves, you know, me, myself, and uh, the unholy trinity. So 
when it started to rain that day, my friend says, come on, we're out of here, let's go. So we go to one joint, we have a couple drinks, we go to another, and we park it in Brockton. And right around 4 o'clock, I'm drunk as can be, as always. And the bartender said, that's it! Pull my drink, he said, you shut off. And so I started to leave the joint. I went out the back door. My back car was about a mile away because I had met Sully at O'Brien's house that day. And I was going to walk the hike it down to get my car, and it was still pouring. It poured all day. I went about 20 feet. I walked back in, and I'm soaked, and I just sat in this booth in a pizza barroom place. And so a friend of mine came in the back door, and, he, and I said, Dave! And he said, yeah, Dan. I said, hey, Dave, can you give me a ride to my car? And he said, he said you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm all right. Because I honestly, truly believed I was okay. Even though I think I'd fallen off the bar stool twice and, and I was out of it. But that's what happens when you take drugs and, and drink. It alters your mind if you've ever been there. You, you, you think you're okay, but you're out of it. You're acting like a jerk. You're acting like an idiot. You're falling all over the place. So I convinced him somehow to bring me to my car. He got, I got into my car and started driving home. And as I was coming over the Holbrook line into Brockton, there's a winding road and there's a sharp bend in it. And as I came around this bend, I remember getting to an accident. And all I remember was all of a sudden there was this wooden horse with a flashing light in front of my path. And before I could hit the brake, I hit it, it broke. And I pulled over. And I found out after the fact that one of the sewer drains, because of the rain that day, it clogged up and it was flooded the street. So the water department was around this corner that I never saw, trying to unclog this drain. And so I got out of my car, and as I did, there was like 15, 20 people out of the clear blue, yelling, screaming frantically. And as I got out and I'm looking through the crowd, I saw a man lying in the road. And there was another man kneeling down beside him. And as I walked over, I said, is he all right? And to this day, I don't remember what he said. The man lying down beside him, kneeling down beside him. I saw pieces of the wooden horse near him. I said, did he, did he get hit by a piece of the wood? And the man kneeling down looked up. He said, no, you hit him. And I went into a state of shock because I didn't see this guy. And I did not want to believe him. But I knew no one would be joking about this. And so I fell to my knees and shortly after the police came and they arrested me for driving to endanger. They took me to the station, asked me to take a breathalyzer, which I flunked, and they arrested me for driving under the influence. They gave me a dime. My parents came and bailed me out and I went home and was sitting at the kitchen table with my parents crying like a baby because I realized I had hurt someone that I had never meant to hurt in my life. And it was only minutes later that there was a knock on the back door. It's glass halfway up, and my father saw a policeman there, a friend of ours, and he said, come on in, and he said, what, what happened? And he said, your son hit the police officer who was directing traffic. And my father said, who was it? And he said, Johnny Gilbert. And I lifted my head because I know Johnny Gilbert. Everybody knows Johnny Gilbert. He's the nicest guy in the world. He walks the beat down the village. When he's done, he comes in and has a beer with you, shoots some pool. Everybody knows Johnny. He's the nicest guy around. And so my father said, how is he? And, and I lifted my head again and he said, Tommy, don't look good. He's, 
He's in the hospital. He's on a machine. And I said, oh, no, and I'm crying. I cannot believe this has happened to me. I, and I just, I become this walking zombie. I cannot think straight. I cannot, I cannot believe this happened. I can't believe it. And so the police officer says, come on, you're going to need a good lawyer. We're going to go to this guy I know tomorrow. And we, we go to and retain this lawyer and enter a plea of not guilty and so forth. And we go to court. It's continued. We go to court. It's continued. We go to court. It's continued. And two weeks short of a year, we finally go to court. Um, meanwhile, what happened, uh, I need to back up. What, eight days after the accident, while the man was on the machine, I was at my girlfriend's house, and the phone rang. It was my buddy Sully. He said, Danny, Sully. I said, yeah, what's up, Sully? He said, hey, listen to me. He always said that when he had something important. And I said, what's up? And he said, he paused, and he said, you better sit down. And when he said those words... I knew what he was going to say. I said, no! And he said, yeah, Danny. Yeah, Danny, he's gone. And I put the phone down. Again, fell back on the couch, and I'm crying. I cannot believe this has happened. I'm, I'm 27 years old, and, and there's a man dead because I was driving drunk. And so I was knocked on the door, served a subpoena, being rearrested now for vehicular homicide. And again, we go to court, we go to court, we go to court. Finally, two weeks short of a year, we go to court, the DA's late. My lawyer marches into the judge's chamber and says, look, we don't have a case. It's pretty clear, cut and dry. they got plenty of witnesses. And the judge says, well, listen, all I can say is if you want to stop the proceedings, I'll consider county time. So he came back and told me this. I said, well, what's that mean? He says, if you don't want to go to trial, just plead guilty now, change your plea. He'll consider county time, which, if he gives you, you'll only be getting two and a half years instead of the five to seven state time the DA's looking for. And I said, look at By this time in my life, I'd accepted what I'd done. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm going to take a ride. So I said, look at I just want to plead guilty. Let's get it over with. So I plead guilty and come back a week later for sentencing, and I'm sentenced to the Plymouth County Correctional Facility in 1985. And you walk in, and you're, you know, you're mugged, your fingerprints and all that. You get out, you know, change your clothes, strip search, make sure you got no guns, weapons, drugs. You uh, are given a blanket, a sheet, thin pillow. You let down the string of cells to yourself. Mine was the next to last one. The officer said, 16. The door slid open. I went inside. He said, close 16. It closed. And I sat on the bed and began to replay the events that had led me there because I wanted to do what I wanted to do instead of what we knew was right. So what happened was a man came to myself shortly after I was there and said, uh, yeah, here's a Bible, man. You need to read this. And I started reading it. And I, I grew up without God. I never went to church, neither did my parents, so I knew nothing about God. I didn't really care. But all of a sudden, I started reading this New Testament about Jesus of Nazareth. Let me just tell you, up to this point, all I, all I ever knew about Jesus was when you got mad, you said his name. That's all I ever knew. But all of a sudden, I'm reading about this one who came down and took on flesh and walked among us. I'm reading 2,000 years ago, God himself was walking the face of the earth. And I, I, I read what he said, I, I watched what he did, and I was falling in love with him. He, he touched the blind and they would see, the deaf hear, the lame would walk, the winds and the seas would he, cool it like that they obeyed. 
And, I, and, and I'm saying, wow, this makes so much more sense than that stupid monkey story they taught us in schools. And I'm like, wow, this, is, this, this makes sense. You know, then this big explosion, you know, billions of years ago, where we've got monkeys and everybody's walking around and we've got people and stuff. I mean, that was the most stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I don't believe smart, intelligent people even believe that. So here I am, I'm looking at the truth and I'm falling in love with him. But when he started talking about sin, it really cut me to the heart. He said things like this. You've heard it said from them of old that thou shalt not commit adultery. You might guess now we had a King Jimmy there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust for her, he's already committed that sin of adultery in his heart. And he went down this list. And you've heard it said from them of old that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say unto you that whosoever would, uh, would be angry at his brother would be guilty in court. And whosoever would say, Raka, or you fool, would be in danger of hell fire. And again, he went down this list. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not uh, lie. And I'm look, looking at this, I've done all these things. And then I read, and these would be cast into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I told you, I was a little slow. But I got this real fast. I said, he's talking about hell. I know he is. So I went to the chapel in the jail. After the message was over, I walked up to the chapel. I said, chaplain, I'm in trouble. He said, what's the matter? I said, I've been reading this book, man. I've been doing a lot of these sins. And, and it says they're cast into outer darkness, weeping, gnashing his teeth. I said, are we talking about hell? He said, yes, we are. You need to be saved. And when he said that, the officer was bringing the other inmates back. He looked at me and went like this. And the chaplain said, wait a minute. He said, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? I said, yeah, I believe that, man, but I've done a lot of them. I'm 27 years old. I've been doing this stuff all my life. He said, Jesus Christ died once and for all for the sins of the world. Do you believe this? I said, yeah, I believe this. He said, okay, when you go back to yourself, get on your knees. And you tell God, you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. But I believe Jesus Christ died on that cross for my sins. He was buried and rose again. And right now, I want you to come into my life. And I went back to myself, folks, and I did that all day long. Because up until this moment, I had measured myself on the horizontal. You know, I, if people said, do you believe you're a sinner? I said, yeah, I've done some bad things, but you know, I'm not as bad as Corey. You know? <laughs> and I definitely ain't as bad as this guy over here, you know. So therefore, I'm a good person. I don't know if this is news to you, but this is pretty much how the world operates today. They love to measure themselves on the horizontal. They see somebody on TV, just got busted, or this guy or that, and yeah, I'm, I've done some bad things, but not as bad as him, so I'm a good person. And according to the scriptures, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We've all had bad thoughts. We've all said bad words. We've all done some things we wish we hadn't. Can I get an amen? Do they do that here? You know, that's pretty much what happened. And I, so I was under this intense conviction, and I asked Christ into my life, and what happened was in that jail cell, I, I, God started changing me. I remember in the old jail, you could smoke cigarettes. I smoked two, three packs a day. It's probably why I never made it past the first, second round. But here I went, the light went up, and it felt dirty. So I threw it in the toilet, and I'm in my pocket. Anything here about cigarettes, you know? Couldn't find nothing. Uh, Isaiah said something about smoking flax. Never tried that. <laughs> but I read this. What 
Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, namely, the precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So I read that, and I'm thinking, man, if the Holy Spirit's in me, I should be pumping this stuff in. And I threw it away, and that was it. I tried to quit a lot of times, folks. But when Jesus came in, that was the last time I smoked cigarettes. And from there, we went to marijuana and cocaine and drinking and gambling and fighting and swearing. And it wasn't like, Danny, you're a Christian now. You've got to stop doing these things. No, it wasn't that way at all. It's when you ask Christ into your life and the Holy Spirit comes in that you don't want to do these things anymore. Can I get another amen? Amen. And so he changed me and and all these things disappeared. The the swearing took a while. It took about a month because I grew up in a tough area. I was swearing when I was five years old and it would always keep slipping out and I had to keep saying, oh God, forgive me, God, forgive me. But after about uh, 30 days, it was gone. My vocabulary was cut in half, but I... I learned a whole bunch of new words since then. And, uh, and God changed me. And so while I was in there, I just kept reading, going to the chapel and, and going to the Bible study. And the chapel would always say, no Bible, no breakfast. Can we say that? No Bible, no breakfast. And I've been doing that for 24 years. In fact, the daily bread, I don't think I've missed a beat. Maybe a couple of days running out the door real quick. But every day I open the Word, I begin a day with God. And it goes nice and smooth that way. And God kept changing my life. And so he, what happened was I got out of the jail and I found a good Bible-believing church. I got involved in a lot of different ministries. And, and then I remember uh, I um, had to stop hanging iron. I was an iron worker. I crushed my thumb on a Heinz auditorium. and It was over. I could, I could drop a coffee cup with it. It's just awful looks. And so I after therapy for a couple of years realizing I couldn't go back on the eye and I, I said Lord what do you want me to do and I remember one day being up on the eye and looking down at all the people on the ground you know 60 stories up they look like ants and there were thousands of them and I remember one day saying Lord how many of these people are saved and the Holy Spirit brought back to memory what Jesus taught he said this in Matthew 7 Verse 13 and 14. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter therein. Many are going down this broad road that leads to destruction. But then he said, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And here I was, sitting on top of the world, literally, 60 stories up, and looking and saying, here I am, I know the way to, to, to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. He's it, baby. That's it. And so I said, Lord, I know the way to life. The Lord changed me. He saved my soul and all these people are going to hell. I said, you know, what am, Lord, use me. I, I will help. I will, I will tell them. And so I looked at all the buildings, the skyscraper over here, the one here, the one over there, all these ones that I had built and the one I'm on, and I'm thinking, you know, the end of the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. One day God's going to level this place. And that'll mean I have worked my whole life for nothing. And I said, Lord, I don't want to do that. I want to build your kingdom. 
And so after the therapy was over and I got the news I couldn't hang iron anymore, I, my friends heard and they said, Danny, I heard you're done. And I said, yeah, I, I can't go up again. It's no good. It's just, you know, it's to, there's no strength in it. And he said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. But during these two years that I went to therapy, whenever I wasn't at the therapy, I would go to the church, man. You know, and the pastor was mowing lines. He said, excuse me, let me do that, man. He'd be paying. I said, get out of the way. You don't have pain anyway. And, and if he was going to the nurse, don't mind if I go along? You know, he's going to the hospital. Hey, can I come along with you? And, and I found out how to minister and love people. And I said, man, I don't like this, man. I'm tired of hurting people. I don't want to hurt nobody anymore. I won't hurt anybody anymore. I'm done. I've hurt a lot of people in my life. I'm done, man. Loving is a lot easier. I just like what Jesus said. Love and love. This is not hard. And it's a lot easier. Believe me. And so I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do, man, but I, I think I want to serve God. And somebody there said, you know, there's a scholarship. You got an education? I said, well, I finished high school. He said, no, no. If you've been to college... And I said, no. He said, uh, there's a scholarship out there for guys that have done time. You ought to apply for it. It was the Charles W. Colson Scholarship. So I prayed about it, applied for it, was accepted, and I went off to Wheaton College. I did another four years. <laughs> no, listen, just, just joking here. Listen, listen. It was hard when I was there. I was there with a wife and three kids at the time. But I got news for you. I look back. And those were the best years of my life. Because this is where God is going to mold and shape you to be the man or woman of God that he wants you to be. Believe me. I know it's tough, but you're going to look, you're going to look back. You're going to really, really be thankful for this. So I was there. I went to school, studied Bible and theology, and it was my sophomore year that I got a call from the jail, from the chapel. We were very close. He baptized me when I got out. He married my wife and I and mentored me and... Uh, so when I, he called, he said, Danny, they built a new jail back here in Plymouth. I said, really? He said, yeah, it's like four times as big as the old jail. There isn't a cockroach inside. I said, you're kidding me. And he said, yeah, it's really big. And, and they want me to go on full time. I can't do it. So he said, that's what I'm calling about. I want you to pray about coming back here when you finish school and being a chaplain. Because they got young gangbangers now, and I'm getting too old for this. We need some young blood. So I said, okay. So I prayed about it and finished school. And lo and behold, all the doors opened up. And I walked back in to the new Plymouth County Correctional Facility to serve as the chaplain. I'm faith-funded. I raise my own funds. And uh, I pay all the bills. And I bring the gospel to the people in the jail. This is what it means to follow Jesus. If you ever looked at what Jesus did, he would hang around with sinners. That's what he did. He hung around with sinners. And you remember the, the Pharisees the church people, they would look at him and say, he's a friend of sinners. He even eats with them. Oh! You know, listen, folks. That's what we're here for. That's what you're here for. You don't have to be like them. You don't have to like what they do. But you have to love them like God does. And you have to befriend them and share the gospel with them. And one of the things I love about being in the jail is when I walk in there, I don't have to say, excuse me, sir, do you know you're a sinner? We could skip that question, you know? <laughs> they all know they're sinners. And they admit it. They got nothing to hide. I don't have to say, do you know you're on your way to hell? A lot of them know they're on my way to hell. They want to know, is there any hope? 
And I bring the blessed gospel, the good news, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believing in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, that's what it's all about, brothers, sisters. One day the lights are going out, and we will all become like the elevator. We will either be going up or down. Pick one. To go to hell, don't do anything. But if you don't want to burn, then accept the free gift of eternal life, which comes from your Creator, your Maker, your Savior. You know, the gift of eternal life is to whosoever. But a lot of people are going to miss the boat because um, unless you receive it, you miss the boat. Let's say I brought this book for Corey. Let's just say it. It's got my name on it, so you can't have it anyway. But let's say I bought this book for Corey. I said, Corey, man, i got a gift for you, man. This is for you. I just really appreciate what you're doing here as a chaplain. It's yours. I want you to have it. Is it Corey's right now? When would it become Corey's? Ah, now it's his. The Bible says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them that believe on his name. And I plead with you, make sure that you do not neglect this gift, that you do receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's not hard. It's just simply coming clean and saying, Lord, I know I've sinned. I've had some bad thoughts. I've said some bad words. I've done some bad things. But I believe that you died on that cross for me. That your blood washes them away. And right now, I want you to come into my life. And I thank you in the name of Jesus. There's no magic words. But sooner or later, you've got to come to the point where you say, You know what, Lord? I can't do it anymore. Here's the keys. You drive tired of running my life. Every time I do what I want to do, I get in trouble. Every time I do what you want me to do, everything goes nice and smooth. It's that simple. And just say, Lord, I need you. I know you're struggling. I know it's hard in college. But listen, just, just come and say, God, please. I can't do this by myself. I need you. And he will come in. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you and we love you and adore you. Thank you again for what you did in sending your son who took our beating, shed his blood to wash away all our sins so that we could have eternal life. And Father, we again pray that you would help uh, these young men and women right now going through school. I remember those days. Help my pray to lean on you, to trust you. And to just continue mold and shape them to be that man, that woman you want them to be. For your glory and honor. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you dismissed, if you prayed that prayer, like the chaplain prayed in cell 16, will you please let me know? I'd love an opportunity to speak and pray with you. You are dismissed. Go in peace.